My name is Julian, and this is the Sales Fix Podcast. It's you, the salespeople across the world that make the world a better place. You've brought down prices, you've increased quality, you've caused the guarantee, the warranty, the return policy, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Discussions, interviews, sales quick tips. Everything to sharpen the saw and make you a better salesperson. Hey, sales warriors. Welcome back to another episode of the Sales Fix Podcast. Glad to have you here. And let me kick off today's Quick Fix episode first and foremost by thanking you, my listeners, for taking the time to tune in and also for your reviews, your rankings, your ratings, and all the other support that I've had since I started this podcast. It is deeply appreciated. Uh, Other things that I deeply appreciate are good quality products made in America that I can rely on. And for those, I will point you, my dear listeners, to Origin Maine. As you know, for an ongoing series of episodes now, I have promoted Origin Maine because I am a big fan of their products. Um, There are two sets of product lines that I really enjoy. First is nutritional supplements. I've talked about the Super Krill Oil and the Joint Warfare that uh, I use. Two... um, Nutritional supplements that really help me stay flexible and mobile in uh, my relatively hard workouts. Um, And then the other line that I really enjoy is their line of clothing. Um, The pair of jeans that I bought from them is single-handedly the best pair of jeans I've ever owned. Um, They don't ride up. They wear well. They're durable. They're strong. The pockets uh, are comfortable. You can uh, slip a cell phone in there and other things. And they're super uh, comfortable. They don't ride up on, on or wear down like a lot of other jeans that I've had. So... Uh, cheapest is not always the best, and Origin Maine is one of those companies that consistently proves that. If you want to check them out, go online at Origin Maine with an E, OriginMaine.com. Highly recommend any of their products based on my experience with the products that I use. So one of the questions that I get asked all the time, and I think it's not just me. I think uh, anybody in a training capacity that's up in front of the room gets asked this question which is the boil it down question, right? If you had to boil it down to one thing, what would you say is the one thing that's determinant of your success or the one thing that really powers success across people? And I kind of like and don't like that question. I don't like it because it rarely comes down to one thing. There is no silver bullet. There is no magic ingredient. uh, There is no shortcut. We'll talk about that a little bit more today. That's going to get you Uh, that. But there are some things that are more important than others. There are some things that override others. And the question that I get asked, um, you know, in a a different format of the question, if you like, is, hey, are are, are you born to sell, right? Or people will make an assertion, they'll meet me, um, they'll see maybe some of the results that I'm getting on something, and they'll be like, well, I mean, you were just born for sales, you know, you're, you're, you're ideal for sales. And that's a nice compliment, right? And it doesn't offend me when people say that, but I, I laugh at it because I know it's not true. Um, but better men than me have actually been offended by that very same question. I heard an interview once with uh, Julius Irving, uh, Dr. J, if you don't know who Dr. J is, um, he had a 16-year professional uh, career in basketball and he's considered by a lot of people um, as one of the most influential, um, you know, basketball, professional basketball players of all time, just based on his career. And he was known for a few different things. He's got over 30,000 career points. I think he's the eighth all-time scorer in, in uh, basketball history, averaged 24 points a game. And one of the things that he was known for was being able to slam dunk from the free throw line. He could jump from the free throw line and, and slam dunk. And um, anyway, the interview that I heard with him 
was him talking about people coming up to him and saying, oh, yeah, but I mean, you know, you were just born to play basketball. And he used – he fessed up in that interview that he would get very offended at that. He would say people didn't see all the work that I had to put in in order to be a good basketball player. They, they didn't see all the hours and the hours and the hours that I had to put in. And one of the stories that he shared during that interview was that um, – and I may be misquoting the story exactly. The details don't matter, right? The numbers don't matter. But to give you an idea, the, the, the story the way I remember it is that he would not allow himself to leave basketball practice until he'd made a, a thousand free throws. So no wonder he was pretty good at shooting from the free throw line. And, and free throws are not, you know, the most important uh, aspect of, of basketball, obviously. Um, so if he was doing that for three free throws, uh, what was he doing on all the other stuff? How many hours was he putting in on all the other things? And the way he would look at it is to just look at him and say, wow, this guy's super tall and he's fast. And so hence, you know, basketball came easy to him. He felt was insulting his work ethic, the amount of work that he had to put in in order to, in order to be a, a professional basketball player and one that was at his level of professional. He wasn't just somebody that was in the NBA. Not that that's, a, you know, in itself not a, a great accomplishment, but he, you know, he's known as one of the most influential, um, one of the best players ever to play the game. And Dr. J, as he was called, Julius Irving was, his nickname is Dr. J, was six foot seven. So, so again, people easy to look at a guy and say, "Well, he's six foot seven. Of course, he's good at basketball." But that logic fails as well because how many six foot seven people out there that are out there are not good at basketball? There's quite a few, right? There's also great basketball players that were not six foot seven. I'm five foot eleven, and Isaiah Thomas is five foot nine. Nate Robinson is also five foot nine. There's also a great player by the name of Muggsy Bowles who's five foot three. So these are these are all players that were way shorter than I. So if you were just going by, oh, it's the natural gift of if you're tall, you're good at basketball, that that logic fails. It fails on its surface. Now where that gets mixed up sometimes, and a clarifying point here is that you'll hear a lot of people say, well, you can do anything you set your mind to. You can do absolutely anything that you set your mind to. And that's a misrepresentation of this concept. This concept that if you apply yourself enough at things, you can get good at them is absolutely true. And there are certainly aspects. It helps to be six foot seven to play basketball. Let's not pretend that it doesn't. But it's not the only factor. And so, again, when we talk about that one thing, what is that one thing that makes success happen? It's fair to answer that there's one thing or a couple things that give you a distinct advantage. But it's not fair to say that we're born with that one thing, that that one thing is the only thing that matters and nothing else that matters. Again, just based on the pure evidence that there's a lot of six foot seven tall people who are just terrible basketball players, can't shoot a basketball to save their lives. Now, if they practice, they would probably get pretty good at it. And they might have an easier time than, say, somebody who's five foot nine at breaking into the game at a collegiate or professional level. But that doesn't mean that six foot seven gives you an automatic pass into being a pro basketball player. And it does not mean that if you're five foot nine that you can't do it. So here's the line that I draw, though, right? Because when people look at that and then say, well, you can do anything that you set your mind to, my counter argument to that is, well, not anything, right? Not anything. Not anything without reason or without limitations or without acknowledging what's going on. For example, I'm five foot 11. I've got, you know, two bad knees and I've broken my ankle a couple times on my right foot. Um, I've also broken almost every single one of my fingers over the course of my lifetime. So can I be, if I set my mind to it, can I be an all-star wide receiver in the NFL? I mean, there's really no amount of practice 
at my age, I'm almost 50 years old, at my speed, with my limitations in terms of the injuries that I have, that's going to make me be able to get to that level. But if I was to spend hours and hours and hours and hours practicing wide receiving skills, would I be a better wide receiver than I am today? The answer is absolutely. Of course there is. Of course that's true. And so talent isn't innate. It's acquired. There's aspects that help you acquire the talent. There's advantages that you can get dealt in terms of you know, social status, access to education, access to tools, access to those kinds of things. It certainly will give you an easier journey than maybe other people will have. But the idea that there's such a thing as a born innate genius, a person who comes out of the womb, if you like, with phenomenal skills on something and that they don't have to apply themselves as well to reach that level of excellence, it's a false premise. And it's a premise that we definitely don't want to buy in sales because it leads us to think, well, some people, sometimes it's called luck, right? Some people are just lucky. You just got you just got dealt the right accounts. You just got you know in a position or you were born to sell. And I you know highly dispute the idea that anybody was was born to sell. So there's a book on this subject, um, and if you're not a fan of Malcolm Gladwell, it's probably because you haven't read any of his books. But there's a book called Outliers where Malcolm Gladwell brings up something called the 10,000 hours rule. The idea of this being that mastery of something comes down to somewhere around 10,000 hours. And he makes a great mathematical case in the book across multiple subject matters to point out that there seems to be some kind of benchmark that happens when we put that kind of time into something. Our skill level hits a particular cap or crescendo, right? Not that you plateau necessarily, but that you hit this particular high point where all of a sudden the law of you know, diminishing returns no longer applies. So now you're in a situation where you're so much better than the people around you that you're converting so much better that every micro improvement that you make pays even bigger, bigger dividends. And in that book, he talks about a couple different things. One of my favorite examples that he talks about is, is Mozart, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, composer that a lot of people think was an unbelievable genius, a musical genius, a born prodigy because he was composing a whole bunch of stuff when he was very young. I think his first minuet was composed when he was was like five years old, six years old, something ridiculous like that. And he was a master musician by the time he was in his mid-20s. Here's what um, a lot of people don't know about Mozart is, yes, Mozart had access to a whole bunch of things um, that helped him with music, including a, a, a father that gave him a lot of time on you know, the piano and the harpsichord and gave him a lot of time and in, in, in education around music. But in his book, Genius Explained, Michael Howe actually says this about Mozart. Uh, quote, by the standards of mature composers, Mozart's early works are not outstanding. In fact, his earliest pieces were mostly written down by his father, most likely, and perhaps improved in the process. Many of his childhood compositions, such, such as his first seven of his concertos for piano and orchestra, are largely actually arrangements of works by other composers. And of those concertos that only contain music original to Mozart, the earliest that is now regarded as a masterwork, which I believe is the ninth, was not composed until he was 21. And by that time, Mozart had already been composing concertos for over 10 years. In other words, Mozart's early work was really relying on the work of those before him, and only when he hit a certain number of hours at spending time in composing concertos was he able to produce originally masterful works. Now you could say, yeah, but he was producing masterful works at age 21. Sure, but he got started at age six. So how is that different from the person that started at 16 and at 31 does something masterful or amazing? Ultimately, the biggest dividend, the biggest dividend giver 
what gives you the best return is the investment of time in something. Tony Robbins refers to this as repetition is the mother of skill. One of my favorite expressions from him. Because Tony Robbins makes the argument, Jocko Willink makes the argument, many other people make the argument that there is no shortcut around this investment of hours in a skill set that you want to acquire, get good at, teach, and eventually master. Teaching being the last step of learning something is typically to teach it to somebody else. There's a little Stephen Covey reference and a shout out to Stephen Covey right there. Bill Gates is another example. Bill Gates wrote code at a very young age, programmed at a very young age, and is considered by a lot of people, along with maybe Bill Joy, to be one of the founders of the modern computer industry. But And Bill Gates certainly had the fortune, the luck, if you like, of having access to programming facilities from a very young age. He was part of a computer club when he was in high school, I believe, and in college, and not every computer club at every high school had access to programming time. Back then, programming time was a a, a short commodity. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, covers this subject as well. So was Bill Gates lucky? Sure, he was lucky in the fact that he had access to a phenomenal amount of programming time through both his <clears throat> education and his uh, work on a project at the University of Washington back in the day. But he also took that luck and used it to apply hours. In other words, there are plenty of people who had access, not everybody for sure, but there are plenty of people who had access to the same level of programming resources and time as Bill Gates did that did not go on to found something like Microsoft and create this, you know, game-changing company in the world of Q-Computer technology. So what do we get from all of that? What does that all of us tell us? It tells us that opportunity is where, or luck rather, is where opportunity meets preparedness. It tells us that, yes, sure, there are discerning factors. Right? It's, it's harder to become a master of mathematics if you go to a subpar school in a subpar neighborhood and don't have access to the resources, computers, time, teachers, uh, people who support you, mentors, tutors, parents, certainly harder for that to happen. But the reason there are there are such a thing as outliers is because even people in those circumstances, given enough time, can accomplish amazing things. Now, again, that does not mean that you can point at one thing and say, I'm going to spend all of my time on that and make that a reality. That's the false premise that comes from the true premise that work, effort, repetition is what breeds skill. Doesn't mean that at 51 or 50 years old, I can decide I'm going to be an NFL starting linebacker because there's no amount of work that I'm going to do that's probably going to get me to that. That's an unrealistic expectation to set. Can I get better at being a linebacker? Can I get stronger, faster? All those things, sure, absolutely, although age gives you diminishing returns on working out as well, right? But uh, in sales, what I point to is that is people will say, well, can I be a great salesperson? And the answer is absolutely you can. But if you're going to be a great salesperson, you can't just rely on access or luck or think that it's some kind of divine skill that was given to you. Even if it was a divine skill that has given to you, you have to polish that skill. You have to sharpen that blade. You have to continue to work and apply work in order to be able to get there because repetition is the key. Right? So make more calls is always what I tell salespeople. Make more calls. Why make more calls? 
right? Because when you make more calls, a couple different things happen. First of all, you have more at-bats. So purely mathematically speaking, if you make more calls, if you don't just chase that one dream account, but call a number of different accounts, you give yourself more chances for success because you're trying more. The other thing that happens as well as that is the result of trying more is you make more mistakes. So you learn from those mistakes, you make more distinctions, and hence you educate yourself and you get better at avoiding mistakes because you've made them before. Nothing like making a mistake to teach you the lesson or lessons that you need to learn in order not to make that mistake in the future, right? So you have a compounding effect of you have more chances and because you're making more mistakes, you're learning more and hence now the third piece comes in and you start converting better off of each one of your opportunities. So you have the benefit of both more opportunities and the fact that you're converting better at more opportunities. A lot of salespeople fall into the trap of saying, well, once I get really good at conversion, I really don't need to have that many more opportunities. And I've seen a lot of very talented salespeople ruin their sales career or at least ruin their year because they chase that one or two magic accounts that they think is going to make them the whole year and they don't understand that ultimately it's not about that one magic account. It's about giving yourself a lot of chances. By the way, you don't, you can't always, most of the time, you can't forecast which one of those is going to turn into a huge account. There's also a lesson I learned playing poker. You know, the movies glorify poker where it always comes down to this one monster hand, right? One guy's got four kings and one guy's got four aces, right? So I've played poker for the better part of the last 15 years, and I probably have about 10,000 hands or more in my under my belt at this point that I've played. And I've seen hands like that come up a fraction of the time. Maybe once or twice I've been involved in some big monster hand where, you know, one guy's got queens over kings and the other guy's got aces over kings. And it's like, ooh, it's the big fancy James Bond Casino Royale theme. Most of the time, the players that are winning the tournament, the players that are winning the evening are consistently winning small hands over the course. And then occasionally they win a big hand. But the fact that they're in a lot of hands means they learn and they get the sense of the odds that how they're going to pay out. They learn things like don't chase the flush. And they're also winning consistently small amounts. And so when they get a big win, everybody remembers the big win, but they don't remember all the little wins that got the person to that big win. And the same is true for your sales career. So it really comes down to this. It comes down to how much practice are you putting in, right? Because practice isn't the thing you do once you're good. It's the thing you do that makes you good. And even when you're good, you could be better. So you need to continue to practice. You need to continue to turn in the hours on it. And it's not like it's a dues you pay in order to get in. Oh, I practiced. I got good enough. And then I can say, well, you can do that, but then you're not going to continue to grow. You're not going to continue to get better. So make more calls. Do more role plays. Record yourself in more videos of you doing your sales pitch. Pay attention to the conversions. Pay attention to the data that's being reflected back on you. And what you find ultimately is that that is the magic ingredient that powers all the other ingredients. It's not that there aren't other ingredients in the stew, but it's that ingredient that more than any other powers the success of what's going on. And there is no shortcut to this. All these things that tell you that you can do something that requires work and discipline and you don't have to do work and discipline in order to get there are lies. They're scams. It's somebody trying to rip you off by telling you what you want to hear instead of telling you what's true. I see a lot of weight loss ads on television. And it's always like, oh, you don't have to exercise and you can eat whatever you want. 
and there's all these great plans until you're going to be able to lose weight, right? And they show you people that are in massively good shape that are probably working out four hours a day. And they led you down the path of thinking that you're going to turn into that person if you just take this magic pill. How many of those have worked out? If there was actually one of those pills out there that was an instant weight loss and get in shape without having to do exercise or monitor what you eat, do you not think in this age, at this point, with all the access to information that we have, that somebody would be selling that pill for a lot of money and it'd be all over the news and all over everywhere and there'd be a whole lot less people that are out of shape, overfed, under-exercised out there. So there is no shortcut except they're doing the reps, doing the discipline. We are... Here in in mid-February of of 2020, the Super Bowl was last weekend or a couple weekends ago, and I'm, I'm, yeah, last weekend, and I'm I'm sitting here thinking after having watched that Super Bowl and seeing somebody like Tom Brady win his uh, seventh Super Bowl, I believe, which at this point pretty much arguably, inarguably rather, makes him the best, the best a quarterback in the history of, of professional football. I mean, you, you, it's almost impossible by any measure to make an argument against the fact that he is at this point, the greatest may not be always somebody may beat him, but right now where we stand in history, he's probably the greatest. And you ask yourself, does Tom Brady, did Tom Brady show up at the beginning of the season with the Buccaneers this year and say, you know what? I got six Super Bowls under my ring. I've been to nine Super Bowls prior to this. I'm a champion. I don't need to practice. Everybody else practice. I'll sit on the bench relaxing, enjoying a margarita in the sun, enjoying the nice weather in October and November in Florida now that I don't play up in Boston anymore. And I'm just going to, you know, sit back and relax and rest on my laurels. In fact, the interviews that they've done with all the other Buccaneers on the team is a lot of younger guys admitted he put me to shame with his work ethic. He was always here before me. He was always here after me. And I had to step up how hard I worked in order to be, match kind of his intensity and what has resulted, it's resulted in a a championship team. So, you know, that's a lot of sports metaphors mixed into one sales podcast. I realize that. But the key that I want you to take from this is that you are never too good to continue to practice. You should never, as a sales rep, look at a training environment or a training opportunity and say, I don't need that. That can't give me any kind of values or benefits. You should look for opportunities to practice, practice, and practice, and practice more, right? Because practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. That muscle memory of continuing to do the thing over and over and correct and making minor distinctions and minor improvements until you take something at one level and you ramp it up to another level that's so high that everybody around you looks at you and says, wow, you were clearly born to do this, or boy, you're lucky, right? And it's not going to come down to you being tall or born in the right place. These are all things that can help and influence it and make the journey harder or easier. But at the end of the day, Bill Gates, Mozart, Dr. J, Tom Brady, it doesn't matter. These are all people that put in the hours to reach the skill level that gave them the success that everybody else around them thought was just good luck, right? It was, whoa, you were really lucky. So don't don't uh, have to be insulted like Dr. J is. I'm certainly not insulted when people tell me that. Um, in fact, it's a compliment, so it makes me smile. But it also makes me laugh because I know it's a, it comes from a completely false understanding of what breeds success. So there is no one ingredient, but probably there are a couple ingredients that are more powerful than others. And I think the concept of this 10,000-hour rule, the idea that it takes that kind of intensity to be that good at something is pretty amazing. I'm going to share with you one 
other way in which I heard this, which really rang true with me way back when. I used to listen to sales cassettes. Yes, I'm that old. I had cassette player in my car. And I used to listen to sales cassettes by a uh, sales trainer and sales guru by the name of Brian Tracy. He's still around and online and still produces great works. But at a seminar that I went to, Brian Tracy said something non-sales related that had probably more impact on my sales career than anything sales related that he said. And what he said that was non-sales related was that he broke down that the average human being reading at the average rate of speed that a human being reads will typically take about one week in order to finish a book. So take a book and if you sit down and read you know, an hour a day, I think it was a half hour to an hour a day was basically what he was theorizing, you will basically get to the point where you're ingesting one book's worth of knowledge every single week. He says if you do that every week, for a year, even if you take two weeks off, right, Christmas and New Year's or Christmas and your birthday, you take those weeks off, you essentially will read 50 books. And if you take those 50 books and group them into one subject, right, so in my case, it was sales. I started picking up and reading everything I could about sales and sales science. If you read 50 books and digest the information in them, you've essentially completed the same workload academically that it takes to get a master's degree in something. A master's degree is essentially the digestion and comprehension of 50 books on one subject. So that means that one half hour a day, right? One half hour to an hour a day, depending on how fast of a reader you are, right? And think about the number of things that are costing you an hour a day. Are you watching an hour of television a day? Are you doing something else for an hour a day that you could, you know, skip or or defer to another time? Uh, but if you read one hour a day consistently, you are basically digesting basically a master's degree in knowledge every single year, and that's the ten thousand hour rule at play, right? The number of hours that we're spending—it's not ten thousand hours to digest, you know. Uh, an hour a week, I don't think it adds up to 10,000 hours. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that it's the same volume concept. If you put enough volume of activity on the same thing, be it reading or shooting free throws from the free throw line, you are ultimately going to land to a point where the knowledge starts to affect your behavior. And then that modification of your behavior starts to affect your results. So with that, I'll leave you with a question. What are you spending even an hour a day on right now that's furthering your sales career? If you're a sales rep listening to this or a sales manager listening to this, and ideally if you're a somebody who just got a sales job or you're a manager that just got promoted to management, it's great that you were a great sales rep. Congratulations. Good for you and congratulations on your promotion. Now what? Now what are you doing at least one hour a day that's going to increase your knowledge base to the point that you start to get excellent results? Because 10,000 hours typically makes you a Mozart or a Bill Gates or a Dr. J or a Tom Brady. So what if you're even at half that level compared to where you are now, right? What, what does 5,000 hours look like in terms of putting that amount of time and what kind of results are you going to get off of those things? And then also what kind of results in conversion, which means you're going to getting better results from the same level of activity because you're consistently, consistently feeding your brain the right information. There's a lot of people out there that are spending an hour a day feeding a lot of bad information into their brain. Choose not to be one of them. And it, you can apply this to outside of sales, right? So if you're trying to pick up the hobby of, I don't know, kite flying or, you know, jujitsu or anything else, it's going to be the hours involved in that activity that are going to make you better. 
Hope you found this useful. Please take the time to rate, review uh, the podcast. Always helpful when we get those online. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Sales Fix Podcast. You've been listening to the Sales Fix Podcast. For more sales tactics and tips, visit the blog section at salesfix.com. That's SalesFix with two X's. We're on Twitter at SalesFix, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you'd like help training your sales team, email us at info at salesfix.com.